Hey, it's, it's excellent to be back with you. It's been a little while since, uh, yeah, since I've, I've been able to share with you. And so great to see a few of the uh, fresh faces as well as some of the uh, faces that are not so fresh. But it's great to be here. It's great to, uh, it, it's great to have uh, to Sarah with me as well. And uh, Sarah's got a little, a little baby bump. We're expecting our first uh, baby boy in March. Yes. The, uh, the first of 12, we're really excited um, to welcome him into our lives. And, and um, yeah, so it's just, as you're talking about Adam being being thankful and gratitude, and we are thankful, my friend, for your safety and that of your, of your, uh, your daughters um, with the wreck this week, so praise God for that. Okay, I'm going to set my little timer on. I do this in all my classes. I'm a professor, as he mentioned, and I can get kind of going, and so I just want to make sure that I respect your time, so I'm starting that bad boy. If you do have your Bible, uh, turn to the book of Galatians. going to be in Galatians 1, and I'll read our text out for us. So Galatians 1, all right, you there? Okay, fantastic. Can I, can I invite you to stand with me for the public reading of God's Word? Galatians 1, starting in verse 11, and we'll go, to, we'll go to 17. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any human source, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, How intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from birth and called me by His grace, was pleased to reveal His Son in me so that I might preach Him among the Gentiles... I did not consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia. Later, I returned to Damascus. The word of God for the people of God, and we all say together, thanks be to God. Amen. All right, you can take a seat. Kind of an odd passage to, uh, to preach on. I think it'll make sense here in, in a minute. So um, have you ever thought about how many, about how almost all of our favorite stories have an old wise sage? They have an old wise sage who in one way or another guides the protagonist and serves as an authoritative voice. So think about some of your favorite stories. 
maybe from literature, maybe from film. Is there a wise old sage who serves as a, a guiding force in that story? Here, I'll give you a few examples. I, got, I think we got some picks. So how about with Star Wars? There's Yoda. Official title, Grand Master of the Jedi Order. How's that for titles? He's Luke Skywalker's guru. And after he passes away, his spirit often re- uh, appears to Luke to give him guidance. Okay, uh, how about James Bond? Anybody recognize her? That is, yeah, I'm going to do a little film trivia here, right? This is M. She's the chief of the Secret Intelligence Service, uh, M16. And she serves as Bond's wise superior. Lord of the Rings, of course, we got Brother Gandalf in the house. He's the wise wizard who Frodo and Sam um, and other protagonists are always looking to for guidance, looking to for uh, direction. You know I'm not going to forget this one, Karate Kid, Mr. Miyagi, wax on, wax off. It's the Kung Fu master who trains up, who teaches this young Karate Kid. Harry Potter, any Harry Potter fans in the house? Okay. So, Professor, Professor Dumbledore, who the name is uh, resembles Bumblebee, it has some kind of... Uh, etymology connection to Bumblebee. Um, who's, the, who's the writer of the... Yeah, it's blasphemy to not know that. Yes, J, J.K. Um, said that she envisioned uh, this professor uh, kind of humming and singing to himself as he walked around, sort of like a little Bumblebee buzzing. So he's the benevolent headmaster of Hogwarts. He always has the best insight, the best advice. How about X-Men? This is Professor X. He founded the X-Men school to teach young gifted mutants how to use their superpowers to protect the innocent and to keep, the, to keep peace in, in society. He serves as the wise old sage. And one of my personal favorites, Matrix. <laughs> Our brother Morpheus, the blue pill. Or the red pill. So he is Neo's guru and mentor who helps Neo realize his purpose and potential. Now, here's the question I'd like to pose to you Do you think that all these uh, script writers, screenplay writers, directors got together at some point in Hollywood? All these literary critics got together at some point and said, Look, if you're going to write a play, if you're going to come up with an epic story, you have to include this sort of wise old sage figure character in your story. I don't think that was needed. I don't think they had to get a council together to agree upon that. I think what is, what's happening here, all these stories are getting at that we as humans need some authority to help us make sense of the world and how to live in it. I think this is a universal experience of being a human. We're not born in a vacuum. We don't come into the world fully formed, knowing how we should live. And so we all look for some guiding force, some authority, some guru 
to take our cues from. And it doesn't have to be an actual person. Often it's not. It can be a tradition, whether religious or psychological. It can be a cultural movement. It can be a philosophical or political idea, what we often call ideology. But, but you see, this is how it works. We all have some vision of the good life. Hang with me here for a second. We all have some vision of the good life. And then we choose an authority that we believe will help us attain that good life. Or at least help us get closer to it. And this authority, by definition, is something outside of yourself. It is a received sense of wisdom. And whether or not it is actually wisdom, uh, well, that's another matter. But we all treat it as such. And we look to it for guidance and authority. The uh, Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor has written this gigantuous tomb, massive book, 800 pages. It's called A Secular Age. And it is a fascinating read. And if you're looking for something at night to kind of help you fall asleep, I do suggest it. Um, he does this historical treatment of how our society became secular. He's looking at this phenomenon of secularism in the Western world. And secularism doesn't just mean that there is an increase of people who don't have faith in God. Secularism also changes the faith of the faithful. So here is one, how, how uh, one writer describes it. This is an age where our sense of spiritual possibility, transcendence, And the presence of God has been drained out. What's left is a spiritual desert. And Christians face the temptation to accept the dryness of that desert as the only possible world. Anybody resonate with that? In a secular age, it is so easy to live as if God doesn't exist. To, to live as a functional atheist, while still professing belief and giving cognitive assent. Now, here's what's really interesting. Some of our best uh, social commentators have said that as more and more people lose faith in the transcendent and no longer hope for divine action in their lives, right? That's what a secular age does. It drains us of the imagination of divine action in our lives. As more and more people lose faith in the transcendent, no longer hope for divine action in their lives, they will place that faith and hope in something else, in human aspirations, such as political ideologies. Whether it's on the left or the right, whether the slogan is change we can believe in, or make America great again. That people will, as people leave the church, they will place their faith in ideologies. They'll be looking to that as, their, as authoritative. Here's my point. We are all being discipled by someone or something. 
There's no getting, there's no getting away from it. As humans, we inherently look to some authority to help us make, make us help us make sense of the world and how to live in it. And that shapes us in significant ways. So is it any surprise then that Jesus comes as a rabbi, as a teacher, as a luminary? At the end of the Sermon on the Mount in uh, Matthew 7, it's the biggest chunk of Jesus' teaching in all of the Gospels, Matthew 5 through 7. Chapter 7 ends with these words. When Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority. Authority. The earliest Christian confession was three words. It wasn't the Apostles' Creed. It wasn't the Nicene Creed. The earliest creed, confession of the faith, was three words. Jesus is Lord. Lord means master, mentor, teacher. It it means guru. To call Jesus Lord means to say, you have the authority to tell me how to live, to mentor me, to shape me, to teach me. In the New Testament, Jesus is called Lord over 600 times. He's called Savior Less than 20 times. About a dozen times. And even some of those times he's called Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Always Lord first. Now I'm not putting those things at at odds by any means. I'm just trying to stress the primacy of seeing Jesus as Lord, seeing him as that authority. So here's the question. If you call Jesus Lord, and this is like kind of the place where people do that, right? It's kind of what we get together to do, to profess, to proclaim. So if you, here's the question I want to pose to you tonight. I want you to sit with it. If you call Jesus Lord, then how is Jesus discipling you? Just like Yoda with Luke. Morpheus with Neo. Mr. Miyagi with the Karate Kid, Gandalf with Frodo, how is Jesus teaching you, leading you, shaping you? Being that we live in a secular age, maybe it would be good to first answer this question. Do you believe that it is possible for Jesus to personally disciple you? Do you actually believe that, that that's possible? Well, let's look at the example of the Apostle Paul. Paul was discipled by Jesus even though he wasn't part of the original crew. You do, you do realize that, right? Paul, Paul emerged later. He came along later. He, he only met Jesus after Jesus had died and resurrected and ascended. And Galatians is the most autobiographical of all of Paul's writings. So in this first chapter, we just looked at a little section of it, but in this first chapter, he's telling his story, how he came to have faith in Christ, how he received the calling to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And as he is describing how he grew in the faith, he throws in this line. He says, I did not consult any human being. 
I've been sitting with that phrase for the last couple of weeks. Why do you think he includes that detail? Mm -hmm. Now, I do want a a few caveats here. Is, Is Paul claiming to be a Lone Ranger Christian? Just me and Jesus. No one else is needed. No, I don't think that's what he's saying. That doesn't match up with everything else we know of Paul. For instance, in the New Testament, we find all of these uh, one another's. It's this little, it's this little uh, word that appears in Greek, alien. It means one another. Here, here's some of these one another's. Encourage one another. Confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another. Speak truth to one another. Admonish one another. There's over 40 of these one another's. I know you can't see them. That's kind of the point. I put them all together on one slide. You can't make them out. There's so many of them. There's over 40 of these one another's, and the majority of them come from Paul's letters. The overwhelming majority of them. Paul knew that the faith has to be lived out in the context of close-knit community. I might even add, in a secular age, even more so. What sociologists call a plausibility structure. A community of faith that reminds you of reality. So Paul, Paul himself had Barnabas. He had Priscilla and Aquila. He had John Mark. He had Tim, Timothy. He carried out his ministry in intimate pockets of fellowship. Uh, for example, he never once traveled or went on a missionary journey alone. Okay, so Paul isn't pulling some kind of lone ranger Christian stuff here. Why does he use this phrase then? I think it's so his readers will know that that above everyone and above everything else, it was Jesus who was discipling him. Paul was personally discipled by Jesus. He says, I did not consult any human being. And I just want to reiterate again. This does not mean that community is not important for our uh, faith formation, for our faith journey, because it is hugely important. Uh, This is worth doing an entire sermon just on that topic. We live in a hyper-individualistic society. We need to reclaim the ancient Christian practices of life together and communal discernment prayerful dialogue. Spiritual formation is a group project because the way of Jesus cannot be lived alone. But guess what? That's a different sermon. And Paul addresses that in other passages. What he is trying to communicate here, what he wants us to know in this passage is that Jesus was personally discipling him even though, he ne- even though he never met the historical Jesus. See, we can't know Aristotle or Abraham Lincoln. Aristotle lived in Greece in the 4th century B.C. Lincoln lived in America in the 19th century A.D. There are historical, cultural, and spatial uh, barriers that separate us from knowing 
Aristotle and Lincoln. Now, we can know, we can know about them. Uh, we can try to get in Aristotle's head and Lincoln's head by reading them and studying them and embracing their ideas. That gets us a little bit closer to them, but the historical Aristotle and Lincoln are lost to us. And to an extent, so is the historical Jesus. Here's what I mean by that. That particular first century Palestinian Jew named Jesus of Nazareth, we can know him at a distance through the Gospels, through really good scholarship. You've got to do a bunch of reading for this. You've got to read the latest kind of scholarship around first century Palestinian Jewish context. We can study that. We can study the Gospels. But we weren't actually there. We can get as close to him as we can, but we can never really cross that bridge and get to know him because of the limitations of time and space. But here's the thing. Here is the euangelion, the gospel, the good news. Because of the resurrection, Jesus is alive and well. And because of the Holy Spirit, he is accessible. So while we cannot know the historical Jesus, we can know the risen Christ. The resurrection and spirit enable us to puncture through the historical, cultural, spatial barriers that separate us from this man who lived 2,000 years ago. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians, we know the mind of Christ. What a phrase. What's in the mind of Aristotle? Fourth century B.C. Ah, I don't know. But we have the mind of Christ. There is access to the Christ who was raised and exalted and is filling all things everywhere with himself. Now, Paul had a radical conversion experience, did he not? Road to Damascus, radical uh, conversion experience. I don't believe that that is what he is propping up and saying is normative for all Christians everywhere in this passage. Uh, as Eugene Peterson says, there are no dittos when it comes to souls. In other words, we all have different spiritual personalities. We all have different ways of connecting and communing with the Almighty. So, that's important to know. Your spiritual experience in life doesn't have to be a carbon copy. Doesn't have to mimic anybody else's. Now, having said that, I would like to contend that it is the birthright of every child of God to hear the voice of the Father. I teach at a Quaker university. We make amazing oatmeal. And there's something, this is something about, this is something um, that the Quakers have stressed going all the way back to George Fox, the founder of the Quaker movement. Now, I teach a history class where I actually on Thursdays dress up like the historical characters that we study. So you ready for this? There's me as George Fox. Wait, I want you to see the resemblance. Go back. There we go. 
All right, go forward. Yes. I make a good fox. I make a foxy fox. Now, Fox talked about, this is so interesting. Check this out. George Fox talked about wanting to take people off of men and put them on Christ. In other words, shake off people so they didn't become dependent on him in order. Um, they didn't become dependent on him in order for them to get their cues from Christ himself rather than him. He wanted to shake people off. This came in, in the heyday of, of, uh, of Protestant Britain when everybody was just a part of a church and it was a formality and it was, it was merely a tradition. I have nothing against tradition, uh, tradition but, but I'm trying to contend tonight that the Christian faith is more than mere tradition that we follow. And Fox wanted to break out of that. He wanted to get back to this mystical, experiential reality that the early church taught, believed, and described, narrated in the pages of Scripture. What both the Apostle Paul and George Fox were advocating for is an intelligent mysticism. This is a phrase I got from an old Scottish theologian named John Murray, one of his books. Okay, mysticism, don't be scared off by this word. Mysticism simply means to, to be on friendly terms with God. It is to have your own direct experience of the Almighty. And the intelligent part means you do not have to check your brain at the door to have this sort of direct experience with God. I don't know about you. I've seen weird stuff in charismatic circles. I consider myself a charismatic, a, a contemplative charismatic. And I've, seen, I've just seen some weird things embraced there where it's like you, you had to, almost like an anti-intellectualism in some circles. An intelligent mysticism says you don't have to check your brain at the door. This isn't an abandoning of the intellect, but check this out, a deepening of it. You are making contact with reality at its deepest level. And that's going to take all heart, soul, mind that you have. So I'd like to give you one suggestion. <clears throat> Maybe one suggestion for how you can press into this or... or or, or live into this reality. Um, this is a suggestion. That means, hey, if, it, if, uh, if the shoe fits, wear it. If, if it doesn't work for you, though, discard and, and look for something else. Try something else. A, a desert day, that's my suggestion. I do a desert day every six months or so. This is a day that I spend outside of my zip code in order to gain more perspective, better perspective on my life in the zip code. Because guess what? We don't learn from our experiences. We learn from reflecting on our experiences. And as Blaise Pascal said, 
all of man's problems stem from his inability to sit alone in a room for an hour. So I schedule these out. When I lived in, uh, in, in Miami, uh, Florida, I, I had some various places that I would do this. I had a park uh, down the street that I tried it out. There was a little monastery uh, two hours north that I would often go to and stay a night at. You could do this anywhere where you can find some quietude, where you can have some genuine reflection. Where I live now in Wichita, Kansas, uh, the epicenter of progressive culture. In Wichita, Kansas, uh, I have this spiritual life retreat center. It's about 15 minutes north, 20 minutes north of where I live. And so I go there for, for a day. They're fantastic. They let me just use their public spaces, their little chapels and, and their little library there. And that's, that's where I go. And I'll spend, I try to spend a whole day there. Maybe you could start with an, an afternoon, a chunk of time. If so, let me give you a little, maybe some instructions, maybe some practicalities for this desert day. When I'm on a desert day, I do two things. First, <clears throat> sort of an elongated prayer of examine. Are you familiar with that language, prayer of examine? What's sort of an elongated version of that? Search me, O God, and know my heart. I ask myself a set of questions. I journal a lot. That's an important practice for me. It's not, it's not for everybody. But I journal a lot, and I ask myself a set of questions. How am I doing, Lord? What do I need to pay attention to right now? Then the second thing I do is I ask Jesus to help me define faithfulness for the next six months. So I do this each, every six months. I ask Jesus to help me define faithfulness for the next six months. Um, I am, I'll just kind of put my cards on the table, get a, little, get a little soul naked with you. I am amazed by the lack of intentionality in people's lives, in most people's lives. William Law, great spiritual writer, wrote on this. Over 100 years ago, he just said that most people don't attain spiritual formation because they never intended to. They lack the intentionality for it. Um, if you were to ask someone where they want to be in five years, you'll probably, I actually encourage you to do this, ask a colleague, ask a coworker, ask a friend of yours, hey, what, what, what's kind of your goals? Where, where do you want to be in five years? They will probably say, more successful. I want to be more successful. Great. Then ask them, how do you define success? What does that mean for you? I've done this with colleagues, coworkers, friends. Um, and they'll kind of you know, think there, and the, um, well, I want to be more happy. And I'd like to be more financially secure. For most people, at least, I think they're just kind of scrambling at this point. It's obvious that they've never sat down and actually defined success for themselves. What does it look like in each area of their life? So I kind of took that premise, and what I do 
is I sit with Jesus, and I, I mean, success can sound very business-oriented. If that works for you, go for it. I like to, to use the languaging of faithfulness. I sit with Jesus, and I ask him, what does it look like for me to be faithful for the next six, six months of my life? And then I start breaking it down into the different parts of my life. What does it look like for my spiritual life to be faithful for the next six months? What does it look like in my marriage to be faithful? What does faithfulness look like in my work? What does it look like in my relationships, in my health? I would encourage you to sketch that out. I, I, I write this out and then I print it and I place it on the seat that I, that I sit every morning as I spend time with the Lord. So I can see that. Just kind of have a trajectory. This is what Jesus called me into for this next season. I teach a class for seniors in college on vocation. They're, they're so concerned. They come in in the semester. They're so concerned about what they're going to do when they graduate. Because everyone is asking them that question, right? You hit that junior year, especially into the senior year. Oh, you're about to go. What are you going to do? I mean, they just get bombarded with that. And so I tell them right from the get-go, and then I repeat it all throughout the semester. The most important question at any given time is who are you becoming? Now, that's really important for 20-year-olds. They're, they're fixated on what am I going to do, what am I going to do. They need to know the far greater question is who are you becoming? Guess what? It's not just for 20-year-olds. As Dallas Willard would say, you are a never-ceasing spiritual being. If that is true, it means that all these things that we invest ourselves in, some of them are wonderful. Work projects and wonderful stuff, wonderful stuff. But they will cease. You are, however, a never-ceasing spiritual being. What then is more important than the formation of your character? Of your soul. Why are we so passive about our formation? Because guess what? Our culture definitely isn't. I would contend that our culture is the most effective discipler that the world has ever seen. The currents of our culture are so strong that if you're not resisting, then you're drifting. So who are you becoming, and how is Jesus speaking into that? I'd encourage you to take a desert day, to find some quietude where you can ask Jesus, how am I doing? What do I need to pay attention to? What are you calling me into this season of life? How might I be faithful to that? Every time I have a desert day I come, coming up, I say to myself, I do not have time for this. I just, this one, yeah, I don't, I don't have time for this. And every time I leave a desert day, without fail, I say to myself, why don't I do that more? The psychotherapist Scott Peck says that the two vices at the heart of sin are fear and laziness. I believe it's fear and laziness that keeps us from growing into the people that God 
longs for us to be. So, can I bring it back to where we began? I'll end with this. As humans, we all need some authority to help us navigate through life. Some authority to help us, to give us a mind map of how to make sense of the world, how to live into it. So who's your guru? Who's your master? Who's your mentor? Do you believe it is possible for Jesus to personally disciple you? Let me pray for us. Jesus, I thank you for the um, absolutely marvelous news and reality that you are accessible. That we can, through grace, by faith, aided by the Holy Spirit, puncture through the historical and cultural and spatial boundaries that separate us from you as you lived and walked on this earth, that we can know the risen Christ that we have the mind of Christ. Thank you for that, that just earth-shattering, tremendous, brilliant reality. I pray for my sisters and brothers. I pray, God, that we might press into that, take hold of that. And I pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Would you stand and receive your benediction for this evening? May you lean into Jesus for understanding, purpose, and hope. Expect great things to happen. Love large and serve well. Peace be with you. You are dismissed.